Welcome to Everyday Law. I'm your host, Bob Clark. It's the show where we talk about information that you need to interact with the legal system successfully in America. It's information that everybody needs every day about the law. Doing a slightly different format today, and that is because I've actually gotten some feedback with regard to the prior shows, and a question was asked about what it is that I do professionally. And this questioner obviously knew that I was a lawyer, but wanted to ask if I had a specialization. And I want to say at the outset that specialization is something that the state of Maryland frowns on, lawyers suggesting that they have. But I thought perhaps the best mechanism for describing what it is I do is to bring in my former college roommate and law partner, Alan Steinhorn. We worked together at the law offices of Clark and Steinhorn in Laurel, Maryland, to discuss what it is we do, why we do it, and how we got into it. Welcome to the show, Alan. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And you are fully aware of the fact that anything we say on this show is not the position of Howard County Community College and that we are not giving legal advice. Isn't that true? That is correct. All right. So if you could just give a general description of what Clark and Steinhorn does on a day-to-day basis professionally. Well, Clark and Steinhorn is a firm comprised of two trial lawyers, and we take cases that go into court predominantly involving civil litigation and injury and medical malpractice cases. You do any criminal cases? I do a little bit of criminal work, but predominantly civil work. I'm not trying to turn this into an advertisement for our firm. I really want to give people a general idea how to protect themselves if they sustain an injury under certain different circumstances. Is there a particular kind of case that you do more of than others? Well, the most common injury cases in Maryland, D.C., and the rest of the country are car accident cases. We refer to them as motor vehicle collision cases because accidents can happen to anyone. But there are different kinds of injury cases. And we also do at our firm, as you know, other kinds of civil litigation. If people need a trial lawyer to litigate a dispute they have with a neighbor or with a business, Uh, Those are the kinds of cases we take. And that's distinguished from a criminal case. Yes. We all know what crimes are, but not everyone knows what a tort is. What is a tort? A tort, most easily defined, is a personal civil wrong. So if someone commits a crime, you go to criminal court and the outcome could be punishment of some sort. If you have a tort, then you go into civil court where no one's going to jail, but monetary compensation is what you seek. So is a medical malpractice case a tort? It is a tort. In fact, I worked for a law firm early in my career in the District of Columbia called Swartz and Reed. And Mr. Swartz always told me to call them medical negligence cases. And And why did he do that? Because it more accurately described what the case was. A medical malpractice case is simply an act of negligence committed by a healthcare provider that causes harm. And is that an area in which you practice? It is an area in which we practice. It is a difficult field. It is uh, usually involving a very serious injury, oftentimes death or paraplegia. And it involves retaining medical experts who can offer opinions in court and tell a jury and a judge exactly what the doctors or other healthcare providers did wrong that harmed their clients. And why is that a particularly difficult area of the law? For one thing, when doctors make mistakes, the public tends to think that the doctors tried their best and therefore should not be penalized for it. 
there have been polls taken across the country over the last 30 to 40 years, and I forget the name of the company, but a very respected company. And they found that the most trusted profession in the United States are nurses, doctors, and pharmacists. And I would presume that's because everyone has to rely on nurses, doctors, and pharmacists to protect themselves and their families. Is that right? That is correct. And there is a general belief, and it's well-founded, that doctors are there to help us. But doctors do make mistakes. When we go into court with a case where a doctor made a mistake, the juries tend to believe the doctors and tend to disbelieve the lawyers. That same polling company discovered that the least trustworthy profession in the United States were lawyers, and I believe used car salesmen were slightly above the lawyers. So when I go into court, a jury is looking at me and going, I don't know if I can believe that guy. But when the defendant doctor gets on the stand, they will believe what he says because that's the way we've been conditioned all our lives. Cases that involve absolutely clear errors, such as somebody has a terrible condition, perhaps gangrene in a leg, or they have cancer and they need to amputate a limb and they amputate the wrong limb, the doctor's insurance company is going to settle that case with you. But most medical malpractice cases are defensible and... There's always an expert out there that's going to testify on behalf of the doctor. Well, let me stop you there for one second. This business of experts, is it something that's important to pursuing a medical malpractice case? And well, if so, why? It's not only important, it's legally required. Many people do not know that in Maryland and uh, other jurisdictions across the country, but let's focus on Maryland right now. In Maryland, a person cannot file a medical malpractice lawsuit without including a certificate from a medical expert explaining in a report why the doctor was negligent and how that negligence caused the injuries. You can have negligent medical treatment, but that not be the cause of the injury. So you have to prove both. So it sounds like there's a couple steps in the process. It isn't enough that the doctor makes a mistake, but the mistake also has to cause some injury of significance to the patient. Is that fair? That's correct. And perhaps that's one of the most important things as you evaluate a medical negligence case, because in some instances, you have negligence committed by a healthcare provider, but that negligence was not the cause of the injury. Or there are situations where even without the negligence, the same injury would have occurred. So inexperienced lawyers that take medical negligence cases that do not focus on the causation part of the case, that is that the negligent act caused the injury, will sometimes be out tens of thousands of dollars in medical expenses, hundreds of hours in legal time, and most importantly, have a very unhappy client at the end of the case. So it sounds as though you're saying the lawyers actually pay for the expenses associated with such cases. Is that accurate? Well, if Bill Gates is my client, I could probably ask him to advance the monies needed for a medical expert. But most people that suffer the misfortune of a medical negligence injury don't have tens of thousands of dollars to pay medical experts. It's hard to believe, but medical negligence cases can run into the tens of thousands of dollars. It's rare that you will be able to try one for less than $20,000. The reality is that large injuries, big injuries, 
are the kinds of cases that can be litigated. If someone has medical negligence and they get a hangnail or they get a, a bruise, it's not the kind of case that you can economically pursue. So I it's see. usually the medical malpractice cases that we see are going to be pretty bad injury cases. And in Maryland, there's a procedure where you actually have to initially file at what the health claims office up in Baltimore and file a certificate of meritorious claim, and then you can remove it to the county where the tort, the medical negligence took place. Is that right? That's correct. In Maryland, the law has changed over the last decade or two. But when I first started practicing law in Maryland, you were required to try your case before what's called the health claims arbitration panel. And they would decide your case. But the losing party always had the right to appeal to the circuit court. And then you would start all over in the circuit court as if the first proceeding in the health claims arbitration panel never happened. And can, can I stop you there for one yes. second? To be clear, in those days, the health claims arbitration panel wasn't a jury per se. It had a lawyer member, a health care member, and then a public member. Isn't that right? That's correct. There was um, legislation enacted that set up a system whereby people who are victims of medical negligence or allege they were victims would have to go before the health claims arbitration panel, and there would be people in the community that would volunteer to serve as panel members. And as you've correctly stated, it would usually be a doctor, a lawyer, and a member of the community. The problem is that it's very expensive to try these cases. You would have to bring in your doctors to testify at the arbitration hearing. So you might ask a doctor to take a day off from work and pay him $5,000. Well, after you've had two or three of your doctors testify and you've spent $15,000 and you win, you would have to start all over again in, in the circuit court because the doctor who lost would then file an appeal. The appeal in Maryland under that legislation was what's called a de novo appeal, meaning you start all over and you have a new trial and you act as if the first one never happened. That became very frustrating for many plaintiffs who couldn't afford to try their cases twice every time. Plaintiffs are the injured people, correct? That's right. The doctors or the healthcare providers, whether they be hospitals, radiologists, anesthesiologists, they are the defendants under our civil system. So if you won a case at health claims arbitration, the healthcare provider and their insurance companies would always appeal and you would just do it all over again. I'm familiar with one case that I was involved in very early in my career where the case was tried before health claims arbitration, tried in the circuit court, appealed in the circuit court and successfully appealed, retried a second time, which is actually the third time, the losing party the third time appealed it again. And the fourth time it was set for trial, I took over that case and we ultimately settled it so that we didn't have to deal with a fifth trial. So you had to have spent a fortune getting to four and almost five trials. It was a wrongful death case. I think we probably spent about $70,000 on the four proceedings. Okay. So one other distinction between the health care panel and the next trial you get is that it's actually can be before a jury. Isn't that right? That's correct. The first trial before health claims is before the three individuals we previously described. However, the law was changed in recognition of the fact that people always had to try their cases twice, even if they won. At a minimum, they'd have to try it twice because the doctors always appealed. So now you can waive the health claims arbitration proceeding and you go immediately to the circuit court so you don't have to try your case twice. And one other thing, when I said $70,000 in expenses to try the case, none of these monies that I'm talking about are lawyer's fees. This is all monies that are paid to expert witnesses, to court reporter services, to videographers, to private process servers, to courthouse clerks that collect the money for filing fees. There is a lot of expense associated with it. 
And even before you go to court, you might spend several hundred dollars collecting the medical records. In Maryland, healthcare providers are allowed to charge you. I believe it's up to 75 cents per page now. So if you have a very complicated medical malpractice case where someone was in the hospital for weeks or months, you might spend 1000 to $2,000 just to get the records. So it sounds to me like medical negligence cases are complicated, expensive, and are often decided in favor of doctors. Why on earth would a lawyer choose to do them? Well, a wise and successful lawyer chooses to do ones where the mistake is very clear. And one of the mistake on the part of the doctor of the doctor, one of the errors that attorneys make is that there are mistakes made by healthcare providers that are mistakes of fact or violations of the standards that they didn't know. But there are also judgment calls that doctors make every day in their practices that result in a bad outcome. And if you take a case that has a bad outcome where the doctor made a decision that was in his judgment the best decision, and if it in fact is a kind of decision that many doctors will argue about what's the correct thing to do, that's a judgment call. And those kind of cases are very difficult to to win. And finally, I'll just add this. Studies show that 70% of all medical malpractice cases result in defense verdicts, that is, verdicts for the healthcare providers. So you better have a really good case, and you better have really good experts. If you are a lawyer that thinks you can just find yourself a fly-by-night doctor who's going to give you an opinion, you're going to lose. You're going to need really good experts. And I'll just add this. I will not proceed with a medical malpractice case unless I truly believe the doctor made a mistake. If the doctor made a judgment call with a bad outcome, I don't want to accuse that doctor of uh, violating the standard of care. It affects the doctor's reputation in the community. It affects the doctor's reputation amongst his peers. And you have to be very selective when you go forward with a medical malpractice case. And I gather that is one of the reasons that your larger focus is on doing automobile crashes, truck crashes, that kind of thing. Well, it is, it is more difficult to do a medical malpractice case. It takes a great deal of time. Uh, when we see cases where doctors clearly made a mistake, not only do you feel good about getting compensation for someone, but there is, I don't know if I'd say it's closure, but when a family is dealing with an injury to one of the family members caused by a mistake, it's very frustrating, it's very hurtful, and there is some feeling of satisfaction when there is accountability and responsibility assigned to the person that made the mistake. If we run a red light and cause an accident, most people are going to stand up and accept responsibility. But when a doctor makes a mistake, no doctor is going to intentionally make a mistake, but sometimes, like the driver that didn't see the light was red, doctors do make mistakes, and it's necessary that they be held accountable so that the person that has been injured receives justice. And oftentimes, the only way we can achieve justice is to assign accountability and to give compensation to the injured party. Fair enough. So medical negligence is a kind of tort, and I gather that crashes and that sorts of things are also a kind of tort. Is that fair? The most common tort that the courts see um, when I clerked in the circuit court for Prince George's County, I would say that three-fourths of all trials in that courthouse were car accident cases. Okay. And there are obviously different degrees of injury that come about because of car and truck accidents. And as I 
practice, there's two levels of court that we deal with in Maryland, kind of a, a lower court, the district court, and then there's the circuit court where you have jury trials and where the limits on compensation are very different. Isn't that correct? Well, yes. If you've been injured in a car accident and you recover from your injuries and six months after the accident, you're looking back on it, you're feeling better, but you've got three, four, five thousand dollars $5,000 in medical bills, you've lost a couple thousand dollars in lost wages, you might not want to file a circuit court jury trial and spend a year waiting for your trial date, spend $2,500 to $3,500 to ask your doctor to come testify, because in any jury trial in the state of Maryland involving personal injuries, a party must produce a doctor in court or by videotape to testify that the injuries the party complains of were received in the motor vehicle collision, that the medical care and treatment they received was necessary, that it was reasonable treatment, and that the cost of the bills are fair. You need medical testimony to offer that. And if a person has a $10,000 case, it's very difficult to spend three or $4,000 in the circuit court paying for your doctor, paying for deposition uh, transcripts. So the state of Maryland recognized that there are some cases that shouldn't have that much complexity, shouldn't require that much expense, and they allow parties who have been injured to file their claims in the district court where your case is heard by a judge without a jury, and you can simply give the judge your medical records and billing statements, and that judge listens to the testimony of the witnesses, of the person injured, and then renders a verdict. You get a trial date within about four months of filing your lawsuit. You pay $35 for a filing fee instead of $135. You don't have to pay $25 or $3,500 to bring your doctor to court. And you get compensation for those wages you missed. You might have to pay your medical bills if you don't have health insurance. And this can put people in a hole, cause them credit problems. And some people are even left with permanent injuries that for the rest of their lives, they're going to be complaining about and seeking medical care for. If you have a permanent injury, you're going to be in the circuit court before a jury because the district court limits your recovery at $30,000. So that's really the line of demarcation that determines whether you file in the circuit court with a jury trial. And by the way, you can request a court trial in the circuit court and not have your case heard by a jury. But most jurors are more sympathetic to an injured party than perhaps a judge might be. But there are cases where it might be better to go before a judge and you have that choice in the circuit court. So are there strategic reasons you would choose a jury instead of a judge? There are. If you have a case where you think it might be complicated for a jury to understand, um, and I'll give you an example. This is not the tort setting. But if you have a contract case, perhaps you've entered into a contract to have your home remodeled, and it's a $100,000 contract. And six months after you've paid the home remodeler, you still can't live in your house. The roof is leaking. The washing machine flooded the basement. And you have hired the contractor from... Heck. Heck. Thank you. And you need to go to court to get your money back. Well, if that case is going to take three or four days... Most people don't want to sit in a courtroom on a jury and listen to people talking about, well, how much was the welder? $122? Let's add that up. And what happened with this and that? So my experience tells me, and in fact, I was told by a, a judge that I interned for, uh, Judge Rosalind B. Bell, told me in the circuit court for Montgomery County that if I ever have a contract case, uh, do not request a jury trial. 
And the reason that comment was prompted was we had a contract case that went for three or four days, and she wanted to know whether we should be serving coffee to the jurors because half of them were asleep for half the trial. I know it's fun to embellish stories, but that's true. I believe you. I believe you. It was the most most boring case I've ever heard in my life. A judge understands the need for um, a judicial determination and will seriously listen to the case, whereas jurors are just wondering what time they get home and who the Orioles are playing. At least here in Howard County. We're in Orioles country. So that's a significant factor in making a determination whether you want a judge or a jury, just sheer boredom. If you have a case that's complicated, that's not going to be interesting, you should request a court trial. I will add this. Um, I started practicing in 1985, and in the 30 or more years since I've been practicing law, society, culture has changed greatly due to media, Uh, not only TV and films, but Facebook, YouTube, and people no longer have the attention spans that they used to. In the 1800s, you'd wake up at five in the morning. We were a farming society. A large part of our population was involved You remember those days? Well, I've read about them. But even in the early 1900s, well before you and I were born, people had a slower lifestyle. And nowadays, and if you are familiar with the book, Uh, Future Shock by Alvin Toffler, he talks about, and this is back in the early 70s, I believe that book was written, about technological advances happening faster than our, our society's ability to keep up with them. Well, if you watch a movie from 1972 and you show that movie to someone now who's 15, 16 years old, they're going to think it's the slowest movie. When you see movies now, there's action, there's movement, there's things happening all the time. And what I believe has happened is people have shorter attention spans. So when you present a case in court, and there are many speakers that give seminars to lawyers about this, you almost have to provide entertainment. So as you think about presenting your case, you've got to think about what's going to make that interesting to a jury. And one of the things that's very important, and if you, again, if you go to trial seminars, they're going to tell you to use visual aids, exhibits. We want a big TV screen in that courtroom. When we've got an exhibit, we're not going to hold up a piece of paper for the jury. We're going to put it up on the big screen. We're going to utilize videotape. If you can keep the jury's attention you will probably get them to hear your case, and it's more likely you'll get a favorable outcome. I've experienced instances, however, where there have been weak aspects of cases, and I have found that mind-numbing boredom makes the jury sometimes miss the weakness of some aspect of my case. So I have deployed things like that occasionally, but it's a rare instance. Well, I I have seen you deploy them, and I commend you. I'm not sure that I can use that strategy as well as you can. I will say that defense lawyers— After a particularly compelling direct examination where your client or your witness has made some very, very important points, I have seen defense lawyers that will take an extremely long time to cross-examine your witness so that he deliberately or she deliberately bores the jury so that after a 30 or 40 or 60-minute cross-examination, they have forgotten the high points of your direct examination. You're scaring me about our jurors a little bit. You know, I believe that jurors are probably right on in their decisions. I've had cases where I've disagreed with their decisions, but then six months later I can look back on it and say, you know what, they were probably right. Um, You can fool some of the people some of the time. You can't fool all the people all the time. Fair enough. And if the defense lawyer or if you as a plaintiff's lawyer fool someone, 
I assure you long-term, you will be punished for that. Because if you aren't totally honest and straight with a jury or a judge, if they sense that in any part of your case you've misled them, they will hammer you with a verdict. They will not believe anything you've said. Very good point. So we've talked about crash cases. We've talked about medical negligence. What other kinds of torts does the law office of Clark and Steinhorn get involved in? Well, there are some cases which we actually, because of the law in Maryland as well as D.C., we shy away from. But there are many serious injuries caused by what's called a slip and fall incident. Okay. And a slip and fall incident occurs when someone who either maintains or owns property has either created a hazardous condition or allowed a hazardous condition to exist without remedying it before someone is hurt. And the thing about slip and fall cases is that they often result in very serious injuries. But the way that Maryland law is written, and to some extent DC law, it is very difficult to win a slip and fall case. The more that the victim complains about, look how obvious that hazard is, the more likely you're going to lose your case. Because it should have been obvious to you. If it's and in Maryland, we have laws, contributory negligence and assumption of risk that cause problems for injured people. Fair? That, that's correct. One of the reasons that it's important to get a lawyer is that Maryland and the District of Columbia are two of, I believe, only six jurisdictions. Now, the last time I checked was probably 20 years ago, but there might be some jurisdictions that have changed. But contributory negligence is a draconian legal theory that holds that if you are the least bit responsible for contributing to your injuries, you are completely barred from recovery. So let's just give a hypothetical in that. So if you're driving and somebody runs a red light and they're drunk, but somehow maybe you were going a little too fast, a judge or a jury could find that you contribute to the happening of a crash and that you get no compensation under Maryland law. Is that correct? That's exactly right. And it's not that the law mandates that you find against the, the person who's injured, but the law allows a jury or a judge to find that the injured party contributed to cause the collision, just as you've described. A drunk driver runs a red light, but the jury hears that you're going 45 in a 40 zone, and they go, well, that person was speeding. And if they really want to, they could say, you can't win because you were speeding, and your speeding contributed to cause this collision. An assumption of risk is a similar beast, but not exactly the same. What is assumption of risk, more or less? Well, assumption of risk is when a person knows of a risk in certain conduct they're about to engage in and nonetheless continues with the risk in mind. Getting into a car with someone who's had a few drinks, for example. You know, that's an excellent example. Um, that is an argument that can be made if you are in a uh, uh, collision as a passenger with a driver in your car who's drunk, a uh, defense lawyer might try and argue that you knew the person was drunk and that we all know that drunk drivers are more likely to have a car accident than sober drivers. So that would be used in that instance. Um, one of the more famous cases early in my career involved um, a hotel in Western Maryland in Garrett County. I believe it was a Holiday Inn, I'm not sure. but. Um, a young lady was required to go to this hotel for a work-related conference. Uh, anyone that's ever been to Western Maryland knows that their snowfalls in the winter are much different than ours here in Howard County. Um, they get very cold weather in the mountains of, uh, of Allegheny County and Garrett County, and they get pretty bad snowstorms. 
Well, the day of this woman's employment conference, there was a pretty big snowstorm the night before, and there was ice throughout the parking lot. The woman who was required to go to this hotel for work could not park right in front of the building and parked in a parking space and walked across a parking lot that was iced over. Now, when she fell as she was uh, coming near the hotel, she suffered very serious injuries, and her lawyers argued that the hotel, knowing that people were walking from the parking lot, had an obligation to salt the entire area. And in fact, the hotel had salted an area, but where she fell, they had missed that salted area. One would think that she would recover against the hotel, but the Maryland Court of Appeals held that she knew that the area was icy. And once she stepped out of her car and started walking across the parking lot to go to the hotel, she assumed the risk that she might slip on ice. I remember when we got that opinion, it was a devastating opinion because it basically holds that even though a landowner might have an obligation to clear icy areas, you could still lose as a matter of law if you walked on that icy area and knew it before you stepped out, even if you're required to for your job. So perhaps a lesson that we can draw today based upon Maryland law and your experience is that it is vitally important to get on top of your prospective case from the beginning. If you're in a crash at the scene of the collision, make sure that you're safe and that it's feasible for you to safely get out of your car, but take some pictures. If the other driver says they're sorry and that they're at fault, make sure that they say that in front of the police officer. Make sure it is clear if there's evidence that there's big skid marks of the person before they ran into your rear, that you take a picture with your camera and that sort of thing. Is that a fair description? If you're not laid out on a gurney being wheeled into an ambulance. If you feel up to it and you can safely do it, you should do those things. I'll close with one thing. We've written a book that answers a lot of the questions people have about what they should do when they have a car accident. If you go to our website, www.maryland-law.com, you can uh, download that book for free. Uh, if you contact our office and our phone number's on the website, we'll be happy to mail you a paperback copy. And if you want to pay for it and give us some royalties, you're happily, we're happy to go to amazon.com and purchase your book. But they're free if you uh, download them from our website. And I presume it addresses the various issues with how to protect yourself if you are injured and what the necessary steps are to take care of yourself and your family. I think the title says it all. It's titled The 17 Secrets the Insurance Companies Don't Want You to Know About Your Car or Truck Accident Case. Well, thank you very much, Alan, for being here today. There's a lot more turf we can cover on this topic, and perhaps we'll do it on a future show. This is Everyday Law. I'm Bob Clark. Thank you. (laughs) 